Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Addressing hunger on a broad scale and even on a small scale is an important part of our faith tradition, whatever that may be. What motivates someone to answer a call to give their life specifically to that end? Jeremy Everett of the Texas Hunger Initiative is going to be our guest to talk about his journey and this work. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome to the program today, Jeremy Everett. Jeremy? Yeah. Good to be here. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Jeremy is the executive director of the Baylor Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty. That's right. All right, say that with me, everyone. Right? <laughs> That's right. So all these long titles yeah, and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but it, it actually goes descriptively into what you do. And sure. All of those words matter, don't they, Jeremy, in they terms do. of uh, how, how uh, you're addressing things collaboratively as a style, yep. uh, also because it's coming out of Baylor University, uh, very connected, I think, to the School of Social Work also, yes, is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah it was originally. We, we, uh, it was originally a part of a, the Texas Hunger Initiative, which was born in the School of Social Work. Okay, very yes, good. that's right. Terrific. And you are an author, and this new book is titled, I Was Hungry, The Strike Through, is mm -hmm. significant as well, it is. Uh, so that uh, we begin to develop our imagination about that being a thing we can say in the past. That's right. Uh, I was hungry. Uh, but the subtitle is Cultivating Common Ground to End an American Crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll talk more about the book along the way. Great. But I, I know that uh, eradicating hunger, uh, elevating people, uh, all of this comes out of a deep spiritual calling for you. And I think it would be really important to say that uh, there are a lot of people who seem to have a desire to do public policy work, mm -hmm. a desire to see people helped. Uh, sometimes uh, that work is exhausting. And unless you have a sense of that inner core, a place from which it springs. That's right. Uh, it's really difficult to sustain it. So I'd be interested to know about how this comes to be for you. Yes, uh, that's a great, that's a great question. I, you know, I think uh, um, oftentimes when I'm talking to our students, I talk about uh, if you want to deal with a big social problem, it doesn't matter if it's hunger or poverty or human trafficking, that you really need to be steeped in three things. One, proximity. So you have to have uh, you have to have proximity to the problem, and mm -hmm. uh, as Brian Stevenson says, you can't solve a social problem from a distance. That's right. Uh, the second thing is research, so you need to understand the issue even beyond your own personal experience, even when you have been immersed in the issue. Mm -hmm. And the third is your faith tradition. Uh, your faith mm -hmm. tradition both helps you, helps you have a framework for understanding your call uh, to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, your responsibility to your brothers and sisters who oftentimes uh, live uh, you know, in, in, in broken social situations where injustice is pervasive. But it's also, you know, it's what restores you. It's, it's yes, what keeps you it, going. It really does, isn't it? It, yeah. it is. And we both of us are Baptists and yes. Baptist ministers, and we come therefore out of a branch of the Christian tradition mm -hmm. that has a high um, value on personal experience with right. God. Right. Right. So while we are not maybe as doctrinally ordered, we are 
uh, highly um, spiritual in, in terms of the individual relationship that we have with God. And yours uh, also is steeped in ministry in your family history. So you were <laughs> right. very much set up for this in <laughs> certain ways, weren't you? Right. Well, we, we, we joke that uh, ministry is the family business. Yes. And uh -huh. uh, so my, my father and grandfather uh, and my uh, we're, we're both uh, Baptist ministers. My uncles are, are Baptist ministers. Uh, my mom's father was a farmer, but uh, but led singing at a primitive Baptist church in in uh, rural Alabama. So it was. Uh, yeah, but let's listen was, to that. Right. He was a farmer. That's right. He was agriculture, he was. hunger. Yes. A lot of streams coming together, That's right. which probably also goes, Jeremy, to the the point when people hear us talk a lot of times about calling, mm -hmm. right? You know, it's it, it, if you if you aren't steeped in the tradition of what vocational uh, uh, calling is, you you might think that that's you know sort of a answer the phone type that's thing, right. or you that's might right. think it's uh, one of those unique, um, rare experiences of a saint who hears a voice. Yep. Right. Normally, it comes through these more n natural channels, doesn't it? Uh, it, it really does. In, in many in many respects, you, you begin to see, you know, to your point, who you were created to be, maybe from the get go. I, that, when I was first trying to identify who I was called to be, the first place I went was Jeremiah one. Ah. Uh, here I was named for the prophet Jeremiah, which I always lament because I have a tendency to, to cry every time I tell a story, and I'm like, why the weeping prophet? Why <laughs> the weeping prophet one? about uh, lament. That's right. Exactly. That's right. But uh, yeah, you know. But in Jeremiah one, you know, God is saying, you know. Uh, before you're even in the womb, I knew who you are, and uh, and so I think yeah, th those those are the uh, the moments that, that help help connect us. I never in my life would have uh, certainly growing up would have imagined that I would be working on issues of hunger and poverty or uh, or being able to see the uh, the correlation between my, my one grandfather being a farmer, another being a minister. Uh, mm -hmm. And seeing both of those bear, you know, literal fruit in, in certain circumstances for uh, for people in poverty, but but uh, it's been it's been interesting. So calling is very much a part of how I identify uh, well, what I experienced um, to address this issue. In your book, you talk a bit about your calling yeah. and uh, about your Franciscan moment. <laughs> yes, and I think um, you. Um, should say a little more about St. Francis and the role that that played yeah. uh, in, he played in, in, in your call experience and trying to understand that because it, it also helps make sense of a much larger um, part of your mission sure. uh, as a result, not just a, a calling to serve God, but the way you do it. Yes, yeah. Well, uh, for me, so I, uh, uh, being a Baptist preacher's kid, my, we joked that my dad only has three years worth of sermons, and so we moved a lot. And uh, uh, oftentimes, we might be at a place where my father would pastor a congregation where maybe the, the member of Congress or the mayor or the business leaders of a community might be a part of. But then I would play basketball with kids that came from a very different context. Oftentimes, it lived in the projects. And, and so I might spend, spend some of my time with friends who are from very affluent areas and then other times playing basketball in a housing project. And uh, when I got to college, th those two things, uh, the, the inequity that I saw on a daily basis, which mm -hmm. really didn't resonate with me uh, probably until I got to college, really began to uh, be called to the conscious level. And uh, 
once it was at the conscious level, I was wrestling with it for years and asking religious leaders and professors, mm-hmm. what do I do about this? And uh, mm-hmm. and also probably feeling guilty about having, growing up in a middle-class household. And and they, many of whom told me, you know, listen, you should feel uh, grateful for what you grew up with. And that's probably truth for most people. It wasn't truth for me at that time in life. Uh, and it, it, it really, I didn't find truth until I found the story of St. Francis. And that was by happenstance, turning on a TV and, and the, the movie Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, which wow. is an uh, early 70s mm-hmm. uh, film uh, happened to be on. And, and uh, uh, watching the story of, of St. Francis unfold, where he ultimately realizes that his possessions are prohibiting him from loving his neighbor as himself and, and choosing to live outside of the safety of the city uh, in, in a life that's intertwined with beggars. And, and uh, uh, it was... It was, had a profound impact on me. And so at that point, that's when I knew that's my answer. And so for me, I gathered up all my stuff and I was in college in Birmingham and drove over the little mountain into downtown Birmingham from where I was and and uh, gave away my stuff to the homeless living in downtown Birmingham. And at that point, I knew I was called to the issue of poverty. I had no idea what that meant, um, but I knew that uh, that was what God was prompting me to do. So from that, you began quickly to have an awakening of how just giving your stuff away doesn't necessarily transform the ones you're giving it to as much as maybe it does you, right? Yes. Uh, Which is also part of this important thing of solidarity. Yes. Uh, The reciprocity of this sort of ministry is very important, a lifestyle that uh, allows us to be acted upon and us to be affected by our engagement with people is is where we need ultimately to be. I think uh, spiritually when we're involved in these things, and you were you were learning that in that moment. But uh, the backpack story, I think, the camping equipment story, <laughs> yeah. uh, is 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 also interesting to yes. me in terms of how you realize that. Um, there has to be a larger systemic change that happens yep. than just the anecdotal give your stuff away. That's right. I was, uh, when I gave away, my, my, my prized possessions were my backpacking equipment. Mm-hmm. And I gave it to a, to a homeless man and, and uh, went back the next week to, to check on the man, to try to build a relationship. And, and he had taken those possessions and, and sold them for drugs. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't know at the time the high rate of, of of uh, debilitating mental health issues that many yes. of our homeless people deal with and how mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol are oftentimes their coping mechanism because they can't afford medication and, and, and right. uh, our mental health system is, is inadequate to say the least. And, right. and so it was, uh, that was an eye-opener for me that mm-hmm. this was mm-hmm. not gonna be uh, like a, a 1972 Zeffirelli film with me walking yes. off in the sunset holding hands with, 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 with the poor. Uh-huh. It was gonna be uh, that this situation was complicated yes. um, and that it was probably going to take a lifetime worth of commitment um, to addressing the issue. So that, it, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, but at the same time, um, before that act had happened, I, I saw people as a means to my end. Nice. Okay. And so this is insight. Um, I, it wasn't until the, the giving away of my possessions that I began to see people uh, as an end and of themselves, okay. Where you know they they are created in the image of God, 
just like I am. And they are worthy of, uh, of relationship, just, just to be in relationship with them. Uh, that if I am hungry mm-hmm. and I want to eat a sandwich, that they're hungry and they may want to eat a sandwich too. And, and so, you know, just the very basic uh, tendency to care for their basic necessities, but also just to be in relationship with people and, and to not use them for so, your own means. So this sort of goes back to the St. Francis story as well, doesn't yeah, it? it? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. I, I love that we're sitting here, Baptist ministers, having a conversation about a 14th century <laughs> uh, friar yep. uh, who uh, is, whose influence is still profound upon us today. Yep. But here's St. Francis who ends up stripping naked in front yeah. of the, the public in his, in, in his town. Uh, the bishop is there, his father, the merchant, is there. And he, in that moment, he has to say, uh, in effect, uh, I no longer have a father on earth. Yeah. I only have a father in heaven. Yes. And the sense of solidarity with all humanity in that moment where he was not willing to define himself by the privileges of being the son of a wealthy merchant Mm -hmm. uh, is what's so crucial in the significance of his influence, I Mm -hmm. think, right? So when you say that people are not instrumental for us, they are ends unto themselves, I think this is part of the secret of that, mm. and so much of what we, so much of what we deal with in our society is about finding competitive advantages mm-hmm. for ourselves and our children mm-hmm. over other people and their children, mm-hmm. right? In in our society, so when we look at public policy, when mm-hmm. we look at choices of schools, when we look at how we make decisions. Uh, if, we, if, if everything is instrumental to that end for what it will do w- for us, it leads to one sense of consequence, right? But if, if people are ends unto themselves, it really is a different uh, calculus altogether, isn't it? It, it really is. I mean, it, then you, um, then there becomes an inherent question of equity. Right. And, uh, um, <coughs> and we have to spend time really kind of unpacking what that means and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you hear people oftentimes say, you know, you're looking for an equity of, of opportunity, maybe not an outcome per se, yes. but, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so if you're, if you're, if we're intent on, uh, on seeing brothers and sisters. So in this passage, uh, I, I really don't write a, about this in, in, in the book, but, uh, so, uh, Jesus is, uh, for those who are familiar with this, the Matthew 25 passage that the right. book is named for, Jesus said, for I was hungry and you gave me some, something to eat and, I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. And and he goes on to say that you know w- when people, when the righteous say, "When do we do this for you?" You know, right. and uh, he said, "When you did it to the least of these who are members of my family, you did it for me." Mm-hmm. So in this passage, Jesus identifies people who are uh, people who are poor, who are hungry, who are immigrants as members of his family. Yes. The rest of us are judged by how we treated members of his family. Yes, and so, so it requires a complete reorientation of how we structure policy, of how we structure our cities, of how we structure our public schools, of right. where we, 
uh, where we want our kids to go swim and where we uh, want to invest our resources. So let's put a pause right there yeah. and we're going to take a break and come back. And I want to go back to Matthew 25. Okay. Who are members of his family and talk about that a little more Great. because it, it does have everything to do with the consequences you're suggesting right yep. there. So yep. we'll be right back. Great. Okay. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is made possible by the contributions of friends of the program. And we are delighted that they continue to support it so generously so that we don't have to ask for additional support every episode. I'm sure you're glad about that too. If you'd like to know where else you can tune in to find Good God, whether in a video format or audio, or even to get a transcript of the program, go to www goodgodproject.com. That's our website, and it's the best place to go to receive an archive of all the previous episodes and to get a new one each week if you'd like. Thanks again for your support. We're back with Jeremy Everett of the Baylor University Collaborative on Hunger and Poverty, uh, which includes the Texas Hunger Initiative. Yep. Uh, with an ambition to eradicate hunger uh, in Texas as a state and collaborate uh, on a larger basis than that. Jeremy, we were just talking about the spiritual motivation, the biblical vision that mm -hmm. you highlighted and that you used in the title of your book, I Was Hungry. This is a phrase from Jesus in Matthew 25. Um, and, and you were saying that uh, what's so important is Jesus ends that passage by saying, and as much as you did it unto the least of these who are members of my family, mm -hmm. you have done it unto me. You identified the members of, that, of his family mm -hmm. with all those that he just talked about, right. the hungry, the stranger, etc. Um, now there's, a, there's an important consequence of that you mentioned, and that is that then we need to follow that into, all right, then how do we relate to members of his family if mm -hmm. we're going to be judged that way? There is another interpretation of that passage that we are increasingly seeing come out of uh, Christian circles uh, that limits members of Jesus' family to his disciples, hmm. to those mm -hmm. who were among his 12 and the small band who were hungry and thirsty and who were mm -hmm. in prison and who were all of that. And the idea here is to say to people more broadly, the way you treat Christians who are vulnerable is uh, the way you'll be judged by God. Mm -hmm. The consequence of that interpretation, of course, is to further the division between us and them, insider, outsider, as if you are part of the elect, part of the disciples of the church, <laughs> right. part, who the yep. church is, yep. now religious liberty issues are really about protecting Christians. Yep. And then you'll be blessed, by the way, if you do yep. that. Public policy, we don't really have to care for everyone who is hungry, who is a prisoner, who is yep. vulnerable. We just need to make sure that we are protecting the interests of those who are hungry in the church. This right. then has a whole other political consequence to That's it, right. doesn't it? And it's really the argument going on in America today mm -hmm. between those who support uh, the current policies uh, that are being um, you know, uh, put forward by this administration 
and supported by 81% of uh, American evangelicals. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm getting at here is this is two radically different visions mm -hmm. that grow out of a faith tradition and out of biblical interpretation. Yeah. And the consequences of it, if we don't even see that they are eternal, they are certainly massive temporally, aren't that's they? That's right, that's right. Well, I think, so let's start with the text. Yes. So the, this is the only apocalyptic or eschatological scene in the entire Gospel right. of Matthew. And let, let's be kind of literalist as we look at the text for a second. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus is speaking, he's, he's, when, he's, when he's returned in yes. this apocalyptic scene, he mm -hmm. has returned as the king this yes. time. And he gathers all the people. All of them. Not some of the people. He right. gathers all the people. Right. And he begins to separate them, the sheep and the goats, the righteous from the accused. And, and to the astonishment of the people gathered, he doesn't mention anything in this passage. Keep in mind, this is the only eschatological right. scene in the entire Gospel of Matthew. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say anything in this passage about uh, grace, justification, the forgiveness of sins. He Whether you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior does and were not baptized come up. by immersion. That's right. It does not come yes. up. What The only thing that comes up, what constitutes a decisive criterion for judgment, it's whether or not a person had acted with love and cared for the needy. Essentially, when people responded or failed to respond to people in need, they in fact responded or failed to respond to Christ. So oftentimes we act like these actions are just extra credit. Yes. Um, but in fact, they are, um, they are part and parcel. They, they, they are the core part, the core tenant of our belief system. If we are going to take Scripture for what it's suggesting, in Matthew 25. And this and so, doesn't have to this doesn't have to alter our sense of what orthodoxy is theologically. Sure, right. Uh, it actually though should orient it differently. That's right. That's right. Right. So uh, so now what we may have to do is to go back to examine who is Jesus and if he is as Richard Rohr likes to call him the universal Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is to say, you know, everything that has to do with this apocalyptic scene has to do with what God is up to in Christ in the world. Absolutely. And Jesus becomes shorthand for the larger way in which God is dealing with the world, not the, uh, the, not the sort of snapshot of uh, this moment in history where we get an eject button somehow <laughs> if we're if if we're right. in the right position and right. say the right words that's right well you know i mean you bring up roar and and thinking about the the franciscan tradition francis really really kind of introduced the idea of not just orthodoxy right beliefs yes. but also orthopraxy right that's practice right. and so i think holding those two things in concert are certainly what right. we see in this passage so so it's not that we you know oftentimes people think well first i need to take care of my own family and mm -hmm. make sure that my own family is well taken care of and that certainly makes sense and you might even can extend that to your own congregation or your own mm -hmm. even the own Christian household but it do certainly doesn't stop there mm -hmm. and uh, if we really believe that all people are created in the image of God then we need to treat them that way yes. and uh, just as we would hope that they would treat us if, if circumstances found us differently right. if we are members of Jesus's family yes. and uh, mm -hmm. um, whom he does not say are people that that have said a, a particular creed, but mm -hmm. people that are 
uh, experiencing injustice um, on this side of the sweet by and by, as we might say in the old. Okay, so church. let's talk about injustice for a moment because sure. you you raised that word and you mm -hmm. raised the concept, and now we're talking about the hunger uh, sure. in particular. Yep. Uh, there, there is a distinction between charity and justice mm -hmm. that I think is important to make here. Uh, much of the work you do is going beyond charity to much more structural question, right. to a, a much more compelling public vision of our life together in the world that is not just about the wealthy who are philanthropic and who are helping people in an, on an ad hoc basis. Mm -hmm. Not that that's bad, right? but so it seems to me that what we have is a system that is currently in place where our laws and policies and our operating principles together publicly are making people vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, the structural things create insecurity. Mm -hmm. Then charity uh, is supposed to come underneath those to strengthen them and to heal those insecurities mm -hmm. so that we can get level. When it seems to me that's just the opposite of what it should be. It's mm. backwards. So mm. if you start out with the idea that we all understand in our common life together and neighborliness that we got to get the infrastructure right, that mm -hmm. we need uh, all of the, the justice matters taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, if charity comes on top of that to move people from a, 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 a starting place of security to opportunity, yeah. uh, what a difference that would make publicly, that right? Would. That would. But instead, we're always starting with this charitable, and then we, we get to cherry pick someone got out of the hood, you know? Right. And if everybody would just be like so yep. and so, yep. you know, this one. That's not the way you operate, though. I mean, right. you, your your whole work is to strengthen the infrastructure and to change the the, the conversation there. That's right. That's so right. So, how do you, how do how do you help people understand that distinction when you yeah. go talk to them? Yeah, that's a great that's a uh, well, it's a great observation and a great imagery uh, that you're using in terms of charity and justice and. And I, you know, I think uh, you know where, where, chari where I find charity important is that charity helps people through today. Okay. And uh, it may not bring about just systems, uh, but because there is so much brokenness in our communities, because you have 40 million people who live in in poverty and hunger, and you know, and, and really true poverty is probably more like you know the 200 percent of the poverty level in terms of like you, that's really where you need to be mm -hmm. if you're going to be able to make ends meet and that's mm -hmm. that's 100 million americans when you talk about that wow. so if you think about it from that end these folks need oftentimes need some interventions that are going to help them through today mm -hmm. and those are important the problem is if we stop there right and and we're not also working to build just systems and mm -hmm. analogy i use a lot with our, with our folks is uh so the first inner city house I moved into uh, was this old house in North Waco, and it had a really bad plumbing problem. Every time we ran the sink or uh, turned on the shower, we could just hear it uh, echoing down uh -huh. at the, in the, in the uh, underneath the house and, and, and creating puddles. And that that plumbing problem was was unpleasant. And uh, eventually, that unpleasant plumbing problem seeped out into our front yard. Ugh. And so it was nasty. And uh, we called our landlord repeatedly to get them to come fix it, and they never did. And 
finally police threatened to have our house red tagged, essentially have it torn down if uh, and vacated if if they didn't come fix the fix the problem. Um, still took a while to get the landlord to send somebody over, but if, eventually he did. He sent a plumber over. The plumber assessed the situation and basically said, "You're going to have to, you know, repipe the whole house." And and so uh, uh, told the landlord that, and the landlord sent the plumber um, to to Home Depot or some you know some shop. And and when he came back, he returned with concrete steps, and he put the concrete steps through the sludge in the front yard, and he got back in his truck and he left. And and we were just shocked at that that was the solution to the plumbing problem that we had for our house was was putting in concrete steps. And those concrete steps. You know, had they, you know, they probably prevented us from getting sick, you know, because we'd have to walk through the sludge. Um, but if that was the long-term solution, they probably would have eroded, you know, over time repeatedly, and ultimately probably would have cost more, you know, than, than fixing the problem. When the police officer came by, back by, and saw that that was the solution to the problem, he was ready to have the house mm -hmm. vacated immediately, and uh, and then that caused the landlord to ultimately come back and and send the plumber over and, and, and fix the pipes in the house. If that, if you think about that, you know, where we're at as a nation, we need those charitable interventions. We need those those concrete steps of charity that help people make it through today so that they're not mm -hmm. uh, experiencing something, you know, awful. But, but at the same time, we gotta get under the house and build the pipes of justice. If we don't, then uh, if we don't fix these broken pipes of injustice, um, then ultimately we're gonna lose the investment that we've built. We've, we've built this nation in many respects is a wonderful country, and uh, mm -hmm. um, but if we don't take the time to build a system uh, that is just for everybody, it's going to ultimately cost us our whole house. Wow, that, I, I just think that's a beautiful place for us to push the pause button here again because I want to have you back to do another episode on right. this. But the pipes of justice, mm -hmm. fixing the pipes of justice, mm -hmm. uh, and the truth is we. We don't all do that willingly. We have mm -hmm. to sometimes exert pressure on people <laughs> right. to do so, and that sometimes gets uncomfortable. And for people of faith to organize, to challenge people to change their behavior, mm -hmm. to change public policy, to confront municipal, state, federal officials, mm -hmm. to get them to do the right thing, mm -hmm. right? is sometimes unpleasant for us because as people of faith and in congregations, uh, we, we like to make everybody happy. Uh, but right. sometimes this is, this is the important work we have to do. Yep. And we'll get to talking more about the Texas Hunger Initiative now and hunger itself in our next episode. But Jeremy, Great. thank you so much for being with us on Good God. Of course. Good. Thank you. That Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.